Today I entitled the message, Straining the Gnat. Now that comes from a bit of a proverb or parable in Scripture where you strain the gnat but swallow the camel. One person has read the Bible. Fantastic. All right. Straining the gnat, swallowing the camel. The idea is that you're so focused on the little tiny minutiae details, you're missing the great big point that God's trying to tell you. And that's why I entitled it this way. It's about Jesus locking horns with the Pharisees and yet loving on the people. And I want to begin with a quote by Kathleen Norris. She said this. It's on the top of your sheet. She said, at its Latin root, the word religion is linked to the words ligature and ligament. Words having both negative and positive connotations, offering both bondage and freedom of movement. The reason why I love that quote is it has to do with what we've made religion. Remember, pure in religion or faultless religion, Jesus said, is this, taking care of widows and orphans and these things. Religion is supposed to be something freeing, something good, something right. And yet we have made it something that is damaging, something abusive, something that is much more like bondage. And that's a shame because that's not at all what it's intended to be. The word religion is supposed to be something that brings a smile to someone's face. That is not happening in our culture. When people mention religion, as a matter of fact, the church has completely distanced itself from this idea of religion. Everyone says it's not about religion, it's about relationship. Everybody always says that same phrase because we're trying to distance ourselves from that negative connotation. In the passage we're about to study today, Jesus goes head to head about this issue of religion, what it's supposed to be and what it's not supposed to be. And he has some serious words for those that would abuse the word of God. Those that would take it out of context, those that would take it too far, those that would use it for their own benefit. Jesus is not okay with that, nor are we. But Jesus is going to do something revolutionary in this passage that's really going to spin the heads not only of those around him uh, that were trying to look in and try to find something wrong with him, but his disciples as well. He's going to alter the Old Testament. And you would look at that and say, you don't have the right to do that. Well, yeah, he does. He's God. He wrote it the first time. He's now writing it again. So, of course, he can do that. But if you argue that he's God, you've got a problem. Because then, no, he does not have the right to do that. Now, of course, we believe that he does, and he's going to argue that he does, and the Pharisees are going to argue that he doesn't. But when we look at the Pharisees wrestling with this idea, saying, you can't mess with that. You can't just change the dietary laws. You can't just alter the clean and unclean system. That is not your right to do. We look at them and we say, wow, you're awfully stupid. How dare, you know, of course he can do it. He can do whatever he wants. Hold on a second. That we forget something. We're so easy to criticize or judge even the bad guys in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But here's the truth. When God set down the dietary laws and when God set down these clean and unclean laws, when God set down the Levitical laws, the sacrificial laws, he was pretty darn serious. Would you agree? Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Anybody ever read that? Okay, good. You don't have a life. You don't have a life. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Okay. Uh, Really boring, really creepy. Okay. Anyway, if you read the last chapter of that, it says stuff like this. God said, if you follow this, I will bless you. If you do not do these things and you continue to be rebellious against me, I will come against you viciously and I will destroy you. 
Okay, so why are they taking this stuff so seriously? Because God took it really seriously and threatened destruction if they didn't adhere to these things. Unfortunately, not only did they hold those seriously, they began to add to it. And then they began to add to it more. And this oral tradition began where they started adding on rules upon rules upon rules. And that is, of course, what Jesus is attacking. But even deeper than that, in this passage, he will even tell you that what God said before was severe. He's going to alter it and change it. That is revolutionary. As I look at this stuff, we, I realize that we need to understand that true love supersedes legal code. In other words, if you are adhering to some rule and regulations, even if you believe it is honoring to God, but yet the outcome is that you are unloving, you've somewhere deviated from the path. If you are constantly being so legalistic, you are no longer kind and loving. You are way out of line. And that's not okay. The Pharisees did this very thing. The religious leaders of the time did this very thing. They began to use the very commands and word of God to abuse the people around them. Are you doing that? As a matter of fact, I put a fill in the blank there in front of you to try to drive this point home just to make sure which team you're on. And it's this. Satan used the word of God for personal benefit. Satan used the word of God for personal benefit. You remember Jesus being tempted in the desert? What did Satan use to tempt him? Word of God. Uh, And you always use the excuse. I'm just sharing the truth. I'm just sharing what's in Scripture. No, you're just being rude. Well, I'm just sharing it. It's right here. It's right here. It's written down. It's black and white. You know what? Satan did the exact same thing. Stop doing that. It's the purpose you're using it for that I'm challenging. It's not the word of God that I'm challenging. It's your heart that's messed up. And that was the issue of the Pharisees. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, page 693, and the Bible's handed to you. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, page 693. Now, once again, as I go through this series on Matthew, I find that he parallels with Mark, the other, uh, one of the other gospel writers, very, very tightly. So Mark and Matthew keep telling the same story. And if we only read Matthew, we're going to miss some stuff. And if we only read Mark, we're going to miss some stuff. So let's shove them together. And on five out of the eight stories I'm going to tell you today from Scripture... I will give you the combo version of those two guys as if they were talking together. So I know that may drive you crazy as you're following along, but try to hang in with me. Some of you may just want to listen to the passage being read. All right. That might make it a little bit easier. Matthew 15, verse one. Let's go ahead. I'm going to kind of just read the first two verses um, and we will get started. It says this. And some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Ooh, you only thought it was because mama said that it made your hands dirty. No, it's a lot bigger deal. And these Pharisees think these guys are going to hell for it. Is that true? Well, that's what we're going to examine. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for the joy of worshiping your name and song that we had an opportunity to do. 
for about 30, 35 minutes before we even started this. And now it's time to get into your word and to praise you through the written. And I ask, Lord, that today you would open it up to us, that we could understand, that you would illuminate it to us spiritually, that we could discern truth. And once we receive that truth, that, Father, it would not be merely academic, but it would be transformational. That we would get it, do something with it, and do it in a loving manner. Lord, would you change us today? In your name we pray. Amen. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That is not merely saying where they lived. It means they're a delegation. Jerusalem is kind of the big dog headquarters of the whole Israel region. And so whatever this wannabe Messiah was doing up in the area of Galilee, they wanted tabs on it. They wanted to check on it. So they sent a contingent, a delegation of leaders, religious leaders of the time to go bust Jesus. They sent him to sent them to watch Jesus, watch his disciples, watch his ministry and figure out areas where he deviates that they might bust him there and lead the people against him. It's no different than they've been doing all throughout when we've been studying Matthew. However, Jesus, once again, is going to turn and bite back. That's one of the differences. So Mark tells us how this story began. And of course, I'm both reading out of Matthew 15 and Mark 7, but Mushed together, it looks like this. They gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were, quote, unquote, unclean. That is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. That's all Mark's info. So if we're only reading Matthew, we missed all that. So we don't want to do that. So Mark tells us washing's a big deal. Now, why? Why do they have this weird, elaborate washing system? Well, because there's weird, elaborate, clean, unclean systems. What do I mean? Have you ever done any study into what's clean and unclean throughout Scripture? Once again, you can read Leviticus 11, and it'll tell you a bunch of stuff like that. However, This is kind of the general categories. Food's a big deal. Okay? Food's a big deal about what you can eat and what you can't eat. Y'all know the rules on what you can eat and what you can't eat. Well, everybody knows the one standard kosher rule is don't eat pork. That's what everybody automatically goes to, right? Pigs are out. Cows are yay. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? It's, It's a little bit of that thing. Now, why are pigs out and cows in. Why is that? Well, and you go, are cows in? What's going on? What about this and lambs and all this stuff? Here's the rule. If you want to go run out and kill an animal, here's your rules to go figure out what you can eat. It has to have a split hoof, which I don't, I'm not staring at a lot of feet of animals, so I don't, I don't know if I'm super good at this. I think I have to look at a book. Split hoof and chew your cud. Okay, those are the two things. It has to be an and. It cannot be an or. You can't have a split hoof but not chew your cud. You can't chew your cud and not have a split hoof. If I'm going to eat you, you must have both. Does that make sense? You've got to have this combo thing going on. Then I will kill you and I will eat you. All right. That's the rule. Now you go, well, what about birds? Well, birds are complicated. So we had to give you a whole list of birds. Bats are not on the list. Sorry. Bats are bad, other birds are good. And what about insects? Everybody interested in eating insects? Well, insects are all unclean except for one, locusts. 
which thank the Lord for John the Baptist, right? You know, that's the only thing he was eating, apparently. They're okay. Why? No idea. There's a bunch of other rules and regulations that go with what you can and you can't eat. But it goes beyond just eating. It's also about certain things that you can and cannot touch. Can't touch a dead body. Why? I don't know. Can't do it. You cannot eat or touch an animal that died of natural causes. So if the, if the animal's like, oh, my heart, ah, and he falls over, okay, then you can't touch him. Now, if he's running, you can shoot him, right? That's cool, but you can't die of natural causes because then he becomes roadkill. That's bad. So it's not just dead bodies or carcasses it it ends up becoming an issue of blood and you go well what do you mean well in order to eat the meat even if the meat is clean you have to drain all the blood out of it you remember that why because they believe that the life was in the blood and you go well that's stupid how archaic how superstitious stop has anyone heard of any modern day religion that doesn't do blood transfusions okay that's where it came from you understand the idea that the life is in the blood you do not transfer out the blood. That's kind of where that stuff came from. All this stuff is still alive. Is there any Christian religions today that currently follow dietary laws? Yes, there are. Where does it come from? Same idea. Okay, so we're not dealing with an ancient world only. We're dealing with a really practical world that even exists around us, right? All right. Well, as you're going through these things, it starts getting more and more complicated all of a sudden it comes down to people and then as they added on to what god had to say they had a bunch of their own traditions and a lot of their traditions surrounded around the fact that you can't touch non-jews that will make you unclean and what does unclean really mean it means you're unfit to minister before the lord you're unfit to eat you are unfit to uh worship however you want to say it you're unfit unclean for that period of time So here's where the problem comes in. You know, you may not be touching a lot of Gentiles, but everything the Gentile touches becomes unclean. And then if you touch that, you become unclean. So because we have a mixed society in Israel, you got a bunch of Gentiles walking in your dirt. When they walk in your dirt, your dirt becomes dirty dirt. and You can't walk on that dirt anymore because now you're dirty. So all of a sudden you have so many laws. There's no way to keep clean. There's no way to avoid all this stuff. So you have to come up with a fix it system. That's the ceremonial washing. They're always assuming they're unclean at any given point. So before you do anything, you must go through a ritual cleansing. Now, it started out with merely a run your hands under the water. Let's go to an elaborate, let's wash like a surgeon. You have to wash one hand, let the water drip off. It can't touch you twice. You've got to use that clean hand to use the soap over here. And you've got to wash and do all these fancy washings, not only for every meal, but for every course. When you live in a culture that has multiple course meals every day, how much washing are you doing? This is what Jesus is going head to head with. They walked in, they said, so we're hanging out around lunchtime, dinner time. Your disciples walked in, totally cold. They're eating. What are they doing? Oh, so they don't wash? So what now? Everything that God said is not good enough for you? They just think they can walk in and eat whenever they want? No, you know the tradition of the elders. You know the rabbis throughout history have given us the proper tradition on what we're supposed to do. As a matter of fact, that oral tradition was locked down in 200 A.D. in what's called the Mishnah, 
which is what you can read today. How does Jesus feel about this stuff? Well, let's finish the Pharisees' argument. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with their unclean hands? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Well, Jesus actually doesn't answer their question. Shocker. He does that a lot. He blasts their argument On the basis of, are you really getting in my face about tradition? Are you really arguing the letter of the law with me? Are you really going to go head to head with me when you are all hypocrites and you don't know what you're doing and you're damaging everybody? And here's what he cites for them. He said, Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? In other words, you're violating God's word by what you're doing. He said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. Moses said, God said, honor your father and mother. And he cites the fifth commandment. And the Bible says, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. That is true. It's said twice. Exodus and Leviticus. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Quote, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin. That is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition that you handed down. And you do many things like that. What's he talking about? Well, you should be lost because Corbin's not a word that we use. Here's what it means. Not only does the Bible say that you need to take care of your parents. Everybody clear on that? The Bible says that you need to take care of your parents. You need to honor your parents. You need to provide for your closest relatives. You've seen that? All right. On top of that, the Jewish culture in that day, and even today, is fierce about family loyalty. You take care of your parents at all costs. You go bankrupt for the sake of your parents. You give them everything you have if they need it. That was the pressure in the culture of the day. Well, you can imagine a lot of people don't care too much for their parents, and they have no interest in following that law. The problem is they'll get shunned out of society if they don't. So what do you do? Come up with a loophole. And they design their own loophole. What they said was there's a word you can call your stuff called Corbin. Corbin means dedicated to God. And the minute something is Corbin, you're not allowed to give it away to anyone. Right? Ah, so what do you do? You walk around your house, you go, Corbin, 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 401k, Corbin. Oh, look at that. My my bank account, Corbin, right? Once you call everything Corbin, everything's dedicated to God. So when your parents say, hey, can I have a little bit of help? You go, you know what? I'd love to help you. But everything's Corbin. Sorry. And that was their loophole. And Jesus said, you're arguing with my boys about washing their hands when you have developed an elaborate system to violate the fifth commandment of God by putting in some stupid tradition about how you can allegedly dedicate stuff to God just to get away from loving on your family. Are you kidding me? That was the attack. We all clear on that one? Great. Let's move forward. He said this, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. As it is written in Isaiah 29:13, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him. And he said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. Jesus was messing with the kosher laws. And that was revolutionary. It's so extreme. We're going to the disciples are going to ask him later and go, were you serious about that? I mean, really? Like everything's it's cool. No, it's such a big deal. You're going to find out that years later, even after Jesus raised from the dead, Peter still doesn't get it. God has to come bring him a vision from heaven, a miracle to go through it all over again in Acts chapter 10 just to get him to buy into it. That's what a big deal this is. So then they walk away. Everyone's angry. Jesus just completely insulted everybody in the religious system. So this happens. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to Jesus and they said, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He's like, really? You mean when I called them hypocrites? Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, Jesus knew he completely insulted them. Why would they ask a question like that? My guess, according to contact, is it's likely they still were buying into the authority of the Pharisees. They were they had grown up in that environment. And, you know, when you grow up and in your hometown, if it's a small hometown, you know who the big dogs are in town. You know who can make your life miserable, who can shut you down. Those were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they went, Jesus, you know who you're messing with, right? I mean, you grew up with us. You're around here. What are you doing? Really? You just completely blasted them. Do you understand how hard they can make our lives? You think Jesus cares? Nope. When your goal is to die, you don't fear anybody, right? It's kind of like, oh, what are they going to do? Kill me? Oh, I redeemed the world. All right. Verse 13. He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots, meaning God's going to remove them eventually. I'm not going to worry about them. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both are going to fall into the pit. In other words, they're heading towards hell anyway. You want to buy into their system, they're going to take you down with them. Let it go. Walk away. That's pretty intense. Pretty intense. After he had left the crowd, Mark says, and entered a house, the disciples came to him about the parable. And Peter said, can you explain that clean, unclean thing to us? And then Jesus said his famous line that he says all the time to the disciples, which is what? Are you still so dull? Okay, that's a nice way of going. Really? You're that stupid. Okay, he says that a lot with his disciples and for good reason. Are you still so stupid? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth doesn't go into his heart? It goes into his stomach and out of the body. I want you to pause there and realize the impact of what he's saying by turning with me. Keep your finger there and turn with me to Mark 7:19. Mark chapter 7:19. In your Bibles, it's page 7:13. Just to let you know, the ones that we handed you, that'll make it a little easier. And I want you to look at what's inside the parentheses, because if you didn't read Mark, you might have missed the implication. What does that passage say in its parentheses? It says this, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods, what? Clean. 
He's going to do it again in Acts chapter 10. But he declared all foods clean. That's a drastic departure from the Old Testament Levitical law, is it not? That's why it was so hard for them to wrestle with. Bounce back to Matthew. He went on, but the things that come from out of the mouth come from the heart. These are what makes a man unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Mark adds murder, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. These are the things that reveal what is inside a man. All these evils are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't make him unclean. Jesus was re-racking their mindset and saying, why are we still focused on the tangible as if the tangible will make us righteous or unrighteous? You putting money in the offering plate does not make you more or less godly and holy. Your tangible stuff does not dictate your eternal state. It is your heart. That's what we're worried about. I'm worried about the fact that even though you do all this incredible stuff for the church, you're still a racist bigot at heart. That's my problem. My problem is that even though on the outside you're constantly helping out maybe your neighbor or the old ladies across the street, but internally you are wretched and wicked and rotten, that's my problem. Quit telling me that I can do one little external washing and suddenly I'm cool. But that was hard for them to digest. Hard for them to understand. Because it was drastically different than what they had raised, been raised with. So for many of you, Jesus is a paradigm shift in your life. It was never so more than with them. It says this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre. That's 35 miles north of where they were at. And the area of Sidon, that's 60 miles north. Now, those are Phoenician cities. Anybody ever heard of the Phoenician peoples? Okay, the Phoenician were the seafaring peoples. They were the ones that kind of started the whole boat, let's maritime, let's be out there on the water kind of thing in the ancient world. They were very big on that. Well, they were notoriously wicked and pagan. The territory that Jesus is about to enter is, now by some commentaries, I haven't double-checked this, so I have to be careful in my source, but they said this is the only series of passages where Jesus ever leaves Jewish territory. Now, he's gone in the Samaritan territory where the Jews don't hang out, but that's still within Israel's borders. This here is the only time he's going to depart from the Jewish area. Why would he do that? Well, it's guesses. Most people believe he did it because he knew that in just a little while he was going to be heading down to Jerusalem for his final task. And he wanted to withdraw from all the hostility, pressures, demands to train his disciples. Remember how before Jesus did his ministry, he withdrew into the desert. In the same way, he's withdrawing again with his crew to escape the crowds and say, guys, are we locked and loaded? When I leave, you know what we're doing, right? And he takes a travel. 
The thing is, if you start reading all the accounts of his travels, he goes from one direction all the way north into Tyre and Sidon, and then in his way back, he hits the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, still a Gentile region in Israel, and by the time he gets back into Jewish-based occupation territory, it's six months later. Starts in the spring, comes back in the fall. We have very little written about those six months that Jesus spent on that travel. This is all we have, and it's quite an extraordinary story. He entered a house, Mark said, and did not want anyone to know it. Now he's an enemy area. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, very unusual. Why? First of all, he called her a what? What kind of woman is she? Canaanite. Why are we calling people Canaanites when Canaan doesn't exist anymore? You wouldn't call someone a Canaanite because that area has been taken over and it's a bunch of other people that live there. As a matter of fact, it's now the area that used to be Canaan was Israel. So why do you call her a Canaanite? He's pointing back to her people, her lineage. Who are the Canaanites? The most bitter, hardcore enemy, and it's a series of people groups. It's one large collection. The Amalekites, the Amorites, the remember all those guys that we fought in the Old Testament, that whole get the guys out of the promised land thing, battle, battle, everybody hates everybody. You remember all that? Those are Canaanites. So we now have an enemy lineage running up to Jesus in enemy territory and calling him son of David. Why is that unusual? Well, because son of David is the Jewish Messiah that will come and make Israel at the top and crush all their pagan enemies. That's odd. That would be you. Right? In other words, why are you calling them that if it's going to crush the Gentile and Canaanite regions? Because she's desperate. And I believe she really believes this in her heart. What would make her so bold as to run up to a crew of 13 Jewish men and start shouting out nationalist Jewish slogans? Well... What's the next line? My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. What are you willing to do for your kids? Oh, she'll put herself on the line in a heartbeat. Would you? Of course you would. This woman runs out, begins to beg Jesus. My daughter is in torment. Now, what would you say if somebody ran up to you and said, my daughter is demon possessed. Can you help me? What would your response be? Okay, well, let me see what I can do. Can I pray with her? Can I counsel you? Can I love on you? What can I do? Isn't that the right way to do it? Isn't that what Jesus taught us to do? What does Jesus do? Look at the next line. Jesus didn't answer a word. He totally ignored her. So she's crying out about her daughter in torment, and he won't answer her question. He just completely cold-souled her, shuns her. Well, that's weird. Then it says, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away. She keeps crying out after us. In other words, just fix her. She's bugging me. Right? Get rid of her. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Wow, that's different than what we've seen, right? He literally stops the disciples and they're going, so do something, right? I mean, okay, just fix the problem. We'll move on and do our thing. And Jesus said, no. I'm here for the Jews. She's not Jewish. Whoa, that's odd. 
And the disciples were probably a bit confused. Now, something you must understand about that phrase that is very deep and very much of a blessing is Jesus is vehemently, extraordinarily dedicated to loving on the Jewish people. You need to understand that. Why? Because this is the contract. God said to Abraham, I will bless the whole world through you. Messiah is coming through you. I will show up to you and I will meet your needs first, period. And if I promise that to you, I will not deviate. Is God faithful to his promises? If he's not faithful to his promises to the Jews, he will not be faithful to his promises to us as Gentiles. Jesus keeps his word. Even in the midst of how much compassion rises up in this man, in this God-man, he shuts it all down and says, no, I'm here for the Jews. I'm walking through this territory to keep things down. I'm not here to build up a ministry. These are not Jews. We're not doing that today. Well, she won't let it go. The woman came and fell at his feet before him. Lord, help me, she said. Mark says the woman was a Greek born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. You think that would be enough? Jesus replied to her, first, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What? Y'all understand that dog is an insult? I mean, nowadays it's like, what's up, dog? Okay, that's totally different. Back then, it was scavenger, scary, pariah, horrible-looking, mangy dog that's mean and hurts people. So to call someone a dog was to call them a scavenger and a dirtbag is basically what it was. But Jesus doesn't use that word here. He uses, there's two words for dogs. The other word for dog is a pet dog, literally, that you'd keep in your house. It's kind of like cute little fluffy dog, right? But still, what he just said is pretty brutal. He just said, woman... I get you're in torment. Let me explain the situation. I'm at a dinner table. All my kids are seated around the table. They're all hungry. What would it look like if I took the food off their table and threw it down to the dogs? What does that signify to them? Signifies I don't love them, and I apparently love this little dog more than I love them. That doesn't show me to be a very good dad, now does it? Now you look at that and you go, but that's kind of mean. You're still shutting her down. One commentary said this. I thought it was brilliant. They said, do you realize that the tone of your voice and the look on your face can change everything? That we don't have in Scripture, right? And you wonder how he said it. Because it's almost like he's baiting her. He keeps bringing her in, trying to get her to go somewhere with him. Trying to, in some way, direct the conversation to where he can have compassion on her. Because you know he's dying to. You know he wants to meet this need, but now he's teaching his disciples about the focus on Israel first, then the rest of the world. So he's not going to break down. So he looks at her and he goes, you know, I'm not going to rip my kid's food off and throw it down to the dogs. And then he slides it back to her and waits for her reply. Now, she is brilliant. This is one of my favorite responses in all of Scripture. Check this out. Yes, Lord, she said. In other words, I totally get your scenario. I'm with you. However, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, that's brilliant. You know Jesus broke into this huge smile. He was like, yeah, that was awesome. 
Why? Because she just got it. She goes, listen, I'm not trying to stop your Jewish gig. I'm not here to shut down your people. I'm not here to rip off your kids' food. All I'm telling you is that while they're eating, I bet you anything, some crumbs are going to fall off. Can I have those? Look at Jesus' reply. Jesus answered, woman, you've got great faith. That's an exclamation point kind of thing. That means in the language, it's boom. And he just went, yes. Look, kind of like, hey, all you stupid disciples, are you paying attention? This, is, this woman is amazing. For such a reply, you may go. Your quest, request is granted. The demon has left your daughter. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Just like that. I mean, how incredible is that? You know Jesus led her into that conversation. There was a point. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis, Mark says. The Decapolis is still a Jewish territory around the Sea of Galilee, but it's ten Gentile cities. So he's still hanging out with Gentiles. That's important. He said this, then he went up on a mountainside, sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. If you want to read about a specific healing in that time, you've got to read Mark 7, about a time when a man that could not hear, could not speak, was healed by Jesus in extraordinary fashion. This is a story where he spits on his hand and touches the guy's tongue. It's totally gross. Anyway, moving on. The people were amazed, overwhelmed with amazement when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And they praised the God of Israel. That is a foreshadowing of the gospel echoing out. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, verse 32. They've already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? (laughs) Gee, I don't know. How about the same way we did last time? (laughs) Where's my Syrophoenician girl when I need her? Surrounded by morons. I just did the whole feeding of the 5,000. Hey, look at that. Really? We're doing it again? All right, guys, let's go through the, the whole gig all over again. Here we go. How many loaves do you have? <laughs> right? <laughs> and they're all, okay, good. I know this game. Okay. Um, gee, they said, seven. Okay. They replied, oh, and a few small fish. Like, that's going to help out. They're like, and check your pockets. I got a sardine. Right? And they're like holding these things up. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they in turn to the people. Stop. How did he do it? Did Jesus give anybody fish and bread directly? I don't know if Justin happened to mention this to you, but do you understand that's how God works? What are we doing here? Why are we at church? Why are we on this earth? You're saved. Why not just die and go to heaven? Oh, I don't know, because God's using you as a distribution agent. Well, he could just tell everyone the gospel and break open the heaven and scream down and tell everybody about it. Oh, he will. But by that time, it's too late. He always does the miracle and hands it to his kids and says, can you give that to that person? Thanks. Watch this. Miracle. Amazing. Miraculous. Can you hand that off? Thank you. When you're not handing anything off, 
guess what you're screwing up? The process. He always works through his agents. That's who we are. Why do you have what you have? To distribute it, yes? They all ate and were what? Satisfied. Let me tell you something. Why did Jesus have to feed the 5,000, then feed the 4,000? Right? You're looking at this going, wait, this miracle was way easier. It was like less people. He had more bread. No. Still impossible. Why did he do two? Two different groups of people. Jews? Gentiles. Here's the other thing. When Jesus finished his primary ministry to the Jews, he finished with a meal and they were satisfied. When he finished his walk through the Gentile territory, he finished with a meal and they were satisfied. What's the last thing Jesus does with his disciples before he goes to the cross? You guys tracking? What does the Messiah do but meet the needs of? And satisfied. It's much bigger than bread. It says they all ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Two things are different. Number one, the size of the baskets are different. In the feeding of the 5,000, the baskets they picked up, how many were there? Twelve. How many disciples are there? Twelve. Those were baskets that you carried like a satchel around your waist, and they were basically personal-sized lunchboxes. I mean, they're bigger than what we would consider a lunchbox, but the idea was they were basically a personal-carrying basket, which had a narrow top, almost flask-like looking. So that was a sign that the disciples would be cared for. In other words, even after I did all my miracle, guess what, guys? Check it out. You got lunch. Let's go. And they moved with their 12 baskets. Now it's a different story. Now, these baskets are not the little baskets. They are called what people have described as hamper-sized baskets. It's a basket big enough for a man to fit in. That's what they're collecting now. So everybody's putting all their extra stuff in there, and they collected how many? Seven. What's the number of perfection? When God echoes out to the Gentiles, his grace will expand, and it will be perfect in all that is necessary and more. Are you watching all the underlying themes that are going on? The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. So how many were really there? A lot. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat, went into the vicinity of Magadan. So now he's back in Jewish territory. What's going to happen when he comes back into Jewish-focused territory? Hostility. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Oops, two problems with that. Number one, Pharisees and Sadducees hate each other's guts. Why in the world are they hanging out together? Because they hated Jesus more. Hostility has a wonderful way of bringing people together in unity. Second problem, when you ask Jesus for a sign, what have you just done? You just nullified every other sign he's been doing the whole time. I mean, literally, he could have turned around and said, really? Really, you mean like raise the dead? Oh, that's right. I did that. Oh, you mean heal people? Yeah, I do that too. Heal the leper, heal the blind, the mute, the deaf, anything. I've done it all. What is your problem? But he didn't. 
He replied, when the evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. Oh, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. In other words, you're pretty good at tangible stuff, aren't you? But you just don't get it. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He said, which I already explained, I'm out of here. Jesus turned, left them, and went away. And we finished with a fun story. Check this out. We're reading out of Mark 8 and Matthew 16:5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Except for one loaf, Mark said, they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Okay. All right. So the whole time they're in the boat, right? You guys all picturing this? Jesus is on one side of the boat and they're all gathered on the other. And they're like, dude, I told you to bring bread. I can't believe you didn't bring any bread. Well, I thought you were going to buy bread. Well, I don't have any money. You're the one that carries all the money. I can't believe now Jesus is all totally angry at everybody. And it's your fault. And he's like, well, you know what? Had I known that I probably would have brought some bread. We got one loaf right down there. I don't know what's going to happen. The whole time they're talking about bread. This is Jesus' response. It's awesome. Aware of their discussion, Jesus said, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do your eyes fail to see? Do your ears fail to hear? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. How is it you don't understand? I'm not talking about bread. You understand what he had to deal with? Man! What's wrong with these people? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he wasn't telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. <laughs> wow! Shocker! How could they be so moronic? To not get it. I mean, that's extraordinary, yeah? I mean, really, how dumb do you have to be to miss two miracles like that back to back? The answer to that indicts you right now and why you do not see God moving in your midst. That answer indicts me for why I do not see the miracles of God. Is God not moving today? Is God less powerful today? Does God not do the miraculous? Or are we just too clueless to figure it out? You think they're more stupid than we are? Oh, I don't think so. Why did they miss it? They overanalyze it? Did they excuse it away? Is that what they did? What do you think we're doing? Were they too distracted? They're too busy working for God, distributing stuff to where they completely missed the miracle and didn't realize that they, he kept handing them more bread? Are you too distracted and too involved in what you're doing for God that you no longer even see God moving? Are you distracted like Martha was? So you need to understand their hearts are no different than ours. Their brains are no different than ours. God is moving today. God is moving in our lives, in our midst, 
How much are we missing? Do we not have eyes to see and ears to hear? Are we too resistant? Are we pharisaical? Are we clueless? All I know is that God's not getting the glory. That's what I know. And it's our fault. He doesn't need to do more. We just need to praise Him for what He's done. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today and thank You for a reminder of who You are. Your compassion, Your love, Your care, Your power, Your strength, and Your refusal to be swayed by men. I pray, Lord, that today we would become these sorts of people. Be the ones that sit at Your feet and listen. Those that see Your miracles and praise. Those that do not allow other things to take our eyes off you, but remain focused and fixed. For Lord, you deserve our glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.